This past weekend, the Diocesan Committee on Environmental Stewardship and Justice held a gathering where we learned how to talk about climate change and environmental issues through the lens of faith. As part of that conversation, Rob Brown, director at St. Matthew Spartanburg, shared some theological foundations around stewardship, dominion, and what it means to be a follower of Jesus and the reconciliation of the world. I hope you enjoy Rob's presentation on this edition of Make, Equip, and Send, the stories that shape EDUSC. With the introductions, I mentioned that I was an avid hunter and fisherman. And over the last year, I've ended up doing a number of funerals for folks uh, in that circle of friends. And each of them has wanted this poem by Wendell Berry to be read at their funeral. When despair grows in me, and I wake in the night at the least sound, in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water and I feel above me the day blind stars waiting for their light. For a time, I rest in the grace of the world and am free. Now that's by Wendell Berry, who is an extraordinary uh, and vital, uh, extraordinary environmental writer. Um, and, uh, and his work, I would commend to, to everyone here. He brings a particular insight, uh, not just from his experience as a farmer and outdoorsman, but also as a person of faith. And, uh, and, uh, and, he, and, he, and he speaks to the sort of things that we're going to be talking about here. Um, I'm, I'm sure at least one of you recognizes that slide. Uh, ML was a trustee uh, with me at Swanee at one time. And this is looking west uh, from the end of Tennessee Avenue at the Memorial Cross at Swanee, a place that I would take my children uh, every afternoon and evening to watch the sunset when we lived on the mountain. Uh, it's in a beautiful place. It's an extraordinary place. And it's, it's almost like a, a laboratory for the environment. And I would recommend the Beacon Center to you and some of the programs that are being done on the, uh, the mountain right now uh, around uh, environmental science and stewardship. Uh, and we actually have a, a conference coming up here in a few weeks. So if you go online, sawani.edu, you can see that information. Um, we are very obviously people of the book. Now, when I say people of the book, a lot of Episcopalians are going to think the book of common prayer, right? Uh, but actually, I'm talking about the Bible and the book of common prayer. But the Bible first, okay? It is exactly what I say it is. It's that narrative of the relationship between God and God's creation. Not just you and I, but all things that God has made. Uh, and it's important that we understand that last sentence, that we are created beings, we are creatures placed within God's larger creation and given meaning and purpose. So in, in a sense, we are certainly related 
to the, the world that we live around. Uh, if you look in the Catechism, you'll find this. Notice I've left from the Bible to the Book of Common Prayer that we are made in the image of God. We are free to make choices, to love, to create, to reason, and to live in harmony with creation with God. That's in the Catechism. Uh, and then, of course, we find in Genesis exactly what our purpose initially is all about. Uh, it's, a, it's a rather clear statement. We are to... Uh, yes, ma'am. Okay. And actually, I was about to, to praise the music playing in the background. So, yeah. Uh, but in any case, if we want to look at, at humanity, if we want to look at our original purpose, then we look to the words as people of faith in Genesis. Dominion, but to till and to keep. Now, dominion can be a, a, a pretty hard concept, uh, and it's one that's often far too easy to abuse. Now, we're doing this because as people of faith, this is a way to approach our conversations about the environment and specifically about climate change. Dominion, actually, in the, in the Hebrew, is about subjugation. It means ruling over the land. However, it's about how you choose to rule over the land that makes the difference. Almost immediately after the idea of dominion is presented in Genesis 1, Genesis 2, 15 modifies it and actually tells us how that's supposed to be done. The words are to till and to keep, abod and shamar in the Hebrew. The idea being that we're actually more servants and stewards of God's creation than ones that can rule over it without any type of, uh, of, of oversight or concern. So when you look at actually the original intent for humanity as people of faith, it is this, to serve, to till, to protect what God has given us. You know, the idea of dominion is far too easy to abuse. Um, I was reading, and, and Catherine mentioned it, that I had a, a background in politics. Uh, I was reading uh, Leon Panetta's autobiography recently, and one of the things that was mentioned in that was a conversation that he had back in the 80s during the Reagan administration with James Watt. Y'all remember that name? Okay. Uh, he was a person who essentially, in his, while heading up the EPA, um, his theology impacted his politics in a profoundly negative way. His thought, and he articulated this, was that it really didn't matter what you did when it came to environmental regulation because it wasn't going to matter in the long run. You know, God was going to come back. It was all going to be okay. Jesus was coming the second coming was all about uh, Jesus restoring things. Now, that's a, a bizarre way of, of looking at the world. But unfortunately, the idea of dominion's been used that way in the past. Panetta talks about a visit to another congressman's office where they were meeting with Watt. There was a congressman uh, 
whose, uh, whose district was on the California coast. And there was a painting in the guy's office of this beautiful Pacific uh, sort of cliffside landscape looking out onto the ocean. And he's standing there looking at this painting and, uh, and Watt is standing there with him. And he says, can you imagine anything that would improve this landscape? And Watt's answer was oil rigs. Oil rigs. So the way you practice your faith, what you believe about God and God's relationship with the world matters because we tend to act that out. Um, now, I, I actually love this image here because it's an example of, of climate, weather, being a, a story that's immediately given to us in the Bible, right? We're all familiar with this, right? Noah's Ark. In fact, if you want to see this, you can drive up to Kentucky, correct? All right. Um, by the way, this is not a beautiful, quaint children's story. And I know that for a lot of reasons, but one is having a child come to me after Sunday school wanting to know why God drowned puppies. Okay? Now, I give you that story as an illustration of the fact that people pay attention to story. Story shapes the way we think, the way we see the world. Now, the story of the great flood, whether you want to be, you know, um, sort of a, a biblical literalist or not, it has roots in other stories. You've heard of the Epic of Gilgamesh? All right. So 3000 or so BC, the story is that uh, Gilgamesh is the great king of, uh, of Sumeria, which is the Tigris and the Euphrates area. There's a great flood. That narrative is actually based on yet another story of another king. And that narrative is one that the, that the faithful Hebrew folks are being uh, held in the Babylonian captivity would have heard and very likely included aspects of that story in this portion of Genesis. Floods were not uncommon. They were known to the people of the region, the Tigris, the Euphrates. Their flooding was essential, just like with the Nile, to issues of fertility for the crops. Okay, You relied on that uh, to bring needed water, but very often, of course, you ended up with devastating flood. So let's make this not about Noah. Let's not make it about Noah and the Great Flood. Let's make it about last year in South Carolina. Okay? Now, uh, you see that large blue area there, those lines that are coming through? Uh, that is part of the, uh, the drainage down to the Waccamaw River. So what happened last year, one of the effects of climate change, of course, is increased uh, power for storms. They're bigger, they're stronger, they're wetter. Uh, we pay a lot more attention to what's rolling off the coast of Africa right now than we ever did before, because here in South Carolina, we live through these consequences. Can you see the little white lines that are kind of in the midst of all that blue? All right, that's the actual original water course. The blue, and this is from our friends at DNR, the blue is what it looked like 
on September 26, 2018. To give you another example of climate change and flooding, so it's not just that we're talking about the biblical story of the great flood. This became a great flood for me and for mine. Our home, our family home, is a few miles south of Conway on the Waccamaw River. Um, that is, in this picture, one of those particularly wide spots of blue. The Waccamaw River, at regular uh, depth, regular you know time of the year, is about 120 yards wide at our dock. I can stand there and I can look across the maritime forest, right across from us, 120 yards. On September 26th, it was a mile and a quarter wide that way, and it was a mile and a quarter wide behind us. Flood stage at Conway was at 21.9 feet, four feet higher than the record. So three out of, we're now in the fifth year, okay? So let's just do this. Three out of the last four years, we didn't meet Allen's record, okay? But three out of the last four years here in South Carolina, we've experienced the equivalent of a great flood. We've had two 100-year floods and one 500-year flood, and that is what a 500-year flood looks like on a house that is on 12-foot-high pilings, okay? Uh, this was before the 26th. This one's on the 26th. That's my cousin's wife in a canoe. Um, that house, um, the only reason it's, uh, it's still standing is because Granddaddy put it up on pilings a number of years ago. Um, we got four inches of water into a house that sits 12 feet off the ground. 12 feet off the ground. Um, this house, and, and I had a lot of other pictures that I could have shown you, was one of five houses on this stretch of road out of two dozen that stayed above water. All the rest underwater. And when your house is underwater, it doesn't really matter a whole lot whether you got flood insurance or not because it's got to come down. Um, this house was actually years ago, uh, it was a Baptist church up on Highway 701 running between Georgetown and Conway. It was a log cabin. It's made out of cypress logs. They don't rot, okay? So when we had to tear the bottom of the house out, the roofing that's over the, the bottom of it, we found the original cypress logs outlining the foundation. So that house is still there. But I don't know what's going to be happening this year in September, except that I do know one of the effects of climate change, we pay a whole lot more attention to climate. Uh, so for us, that means that, um, that we're watching the storm that's forming off the east coast of Florida right now. And we're watching the tropical depression that's rolling off of Africa right now. Because this was not the result of a direct hit. This was a storm that dropped from a four to a one and then just sat there and rained. The previous two floods, the previous two 100-year floods, that actually got up to the level of the house right here. Hurricane never touched South Carolina. There were storms going into North Carolina that dropped all the water into the Waccamaw that flooded this. Anybody ever been to Nichols, South Carolina? 
Not anymore, you won't. Okay? Nichols has been basically destroyed by the flooding of the Waccamaw River. Drought, famine. You find this all through the biblical story. Now, I'm using all of these stories from Genesis as an example because in our narrative, remember, we're people of the book, the people are impacted by drought and famine over and over and over again. It's what leads Abram and, and, uh, and Abraham and Sarah, Abram and Sarai, uh, actually out into Egypt early on in the story and then back into the land of Canaan. It's what leads uh, the children of Jacob to seek you know, help from their, not knowing it was their brother Joseph, but it leads them into Egypt. But Egypt itself is suffering from drought and famine at the same time. Again, if you read Holy Scripture, you'll find over and over and over again examples of climate, weather impacting the people. So, in the Bible, one of the things that we see being described in Scripture is that floods, droughts, famine, they're all as a result of a fractured relationship with God. Now, Again, there's a literalist interpretation of things and there's a broader interpretation. The literalist is going to say that sin, period, sin against God and the breaking of Torah is what leads God to punish humanity by doing things like famine and drought and flooding. Another way to look at this, a good sound theological way to look at this, is that we, humanity, are not doing the things that we're supposed to be doing when it comes to our relationship with creation. And the consequences of our abusing that relationship here in the contemporary world is flood, drought, famine, the consequences of climate change. You see, we are supposed to be in right relationship with God. And right relationship with God requires us to be in right relationship with one another and with what God has made. Sabbath. How many people here really enjoy Sabbath time? How many people actually get Sabbath time? A few, a few, but, but not enough. Sabbath is about not just rest, but restoration. It's about taking time to take care of yourself. But guess what? Our dear friends in Holy Scripture knew that that applied to the earth itself. So it's not just a Sabbath for you and I, but a Sabbath for creation itself. In Leviticus, you'll hear something being described as the year of Jubilee, the 50th year where slaves are freed and debts are forgiven and the land is given back uh, to those it was taken from, as an example. However, however, it also means that the land is given the opportunity to rest. The land itself is given an opportunity to rest. So when you're talking to people about things like climate change and your faith, this isn't politics the way most people think of politics. It's just actually about your faith.
and doing exactly what God intended for you and I to be doing, caring for God's creation, caring for it, doing the work that's necessary in order to preserve it, or for that matter, to restore it. We're, we're Christians. Restoration is a big part of who we are. Oh, and my, my daughter found this. I have no idea where she got this. So I've been using I've been using Old Testament references, but the fact is we are Christians. The New Testament. So what does the New Testament have to say? How does it speak to the issue? Well, a minute ago I talked about um, the idea that Genesis two fifteen actually interprets Genesis one that tilling and keeping the earth is how you actually are supposed to exercise dominion. So what was the number one bestseller in the first century among good, faithful Jews? Isaiah. They loved it. Isaiah. That was the thing that really informed uh, the, uh, the, uh, the actual ministry of Jesus. Isaiah. Uh, another little aside here, the Dead Sea Scrolls. What is the most intact scroll? It's the Isaiah scroll, okay? It was extraordinarily important to the people of the first century. It was not just taken care of, it was poured over. It was examined, it was learned from. And it wasn't just because of the prophetic dimension of it. Jesus did something with Isaiah that had not been done before. Y'all heard, you're, I mean, y'all all go to Sunday school, right? We need hands up here, people, okay? Suffering servant. Who was the suffering servant? Jesus, exactly. Jesus was a suffering servant after he interpreted Isaiah for the Messiah to be the suffering servant. In other words, Jesus takes the story and molds it and shapes it to speak to that particular moment. You can look at it as a prophetic opportunity or not, but the fact is Jesus does to Isaiah exactly what Genesis 2 does to Genesis 1. It changes the way we look at it. It causes us to take a deeper dive. So we leapt there into the Bible for a minute, so we're good Episcopalians. Let's leap back out the book of common prayer the baptismal covenant where you seek and serve christ in all persons loving your neighbor as yourself good answer good answer now um my old political career uh the person i work for liz patterson a remarkable remarkable lady by the way she's being honored um you know, she died this past year and um, on September 26th, uh, they're having a service in honor of her and Fritz Hollings uh, up, at, um, up at the Capitol. But she had this incredible quote that she always used when she was talking to, to groups of people. And I'm afraid I do not do know who she was quoting. <clears throat> but I understand it was a 19th century politician who said, politics is the science of life. Politics is the science of life or how you deal with your neighbor. Your neighbor. Politics is the science of life, or how you deal with your neighbor. Jesus also said what? The summary of the law. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and love your neighbor as yourself. So, as Episcopalians, we probably need to realize that the things like our faith and our politics really aren't separate. A lot of parishioners don't want to hear that, okay? But how you choose to live out your faith impacts how you choose to live out your civil life as well. Eucharistic prayer C. From the primal elements you brought forth the human race and blessed us with memory, reason, and skill, you made us the rulers of creation, but we turned against you and betrayed your trust, and we turned against one another. Eucharistic prayer C does something powerful. It takes images about creation, about the world, about all that God has made, and it makes that central to the celebration of the Eucharist. I'm going to give you another word, anamnesis. Um, you've been in confirmation class. You've heard that before. In, in some sense, it's remembrance. But it's more than remembrance. It's calling back into reality the reality of that moment. We use it around the sacraments. We use it particularly around the Eucharist because what we're saying is somehow in that moment, Jesus is more than just being memorialized. Jesus is present. In a very real sense, that's the, what we're really saying about all sacraments. And that's what we're saying about how we're supposed to interact with one another. All right? We are supposed to call back into this moment the reality of God working in the world, the reality of God's original intent for what God has made. You're all familiar with this one, right? How often do you say that? Well, let's, let's hope at least weekly, okay? It, it's entirely possible you say it more. Yes, this is the, the traditional version of it, uh, but it has something really, really important. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. My question for y'all is when? Now. Exactly right. It's not about the sweet by and by. It's not about, well, next month or next year or 10 years from now. It's about now. Now, we have folks from a couple of other denominations, but Episcopalians, um, tell me what you're thinking about when you pray that. What are you asking? No, I'm asking everybody. Everybody. Okay. I trust you. The rule of God is not. Uh huh. Okay. What is the kingdom of God? His rule, his love. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Unity. Okay, by the way, the mission of the church is to restore all people to unity in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay? The kingdom of heaven. Except it's saying your kingdom come. 
right now. Y'all are all exactly right. Actually, that's a bit of a trick question in that you could probably write, or I'm sure there have been many, you know, doctoral works done on the kingdom of heaven and what that's supposed to mean. But when we're looking at the state of South Carolina, yeah, I'm going to make it real, real here and now. We're talking about the world. We're talking about climate change. But we had that wonderful slide of Charleston that was thrown up there at the very beginning of this. So climate change, and here in Columbia, what was it, four years ago, the floods? 15? Yeah. We see the results of climate change all the time. So your brokenness or the brokenness of the world is being lived out all around us right now. My point is that our response to it is a faith response. It's a faith response. We're going to be dealing with the reality of this for the rest of our lives. Our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren will be dealing with the reality of this no matter what we do. No matter what we do. It's just whether or not it's going to be so bad that it slips over the edge into the kind of devastating catastrophe that overwhelms the world and its resources, which means it overwhelms you and I and those that come after us. The consequences, the possibilities are dire. They truly, they truly are. Now, this is, uh, is just sort of a concept to leave you with. Um, eschatology. Does anybody know what that is? The end times. Exactly. Um, my... Uh, and it's, it's interesting. Um, it's not something that's that's just being talked about. It's only been talked about since uh, the resurrection. Okay, and uh, I can I can remember I can remember sitting with uh, with some older relatives at family reunions around 1968, 69, 70, and they were convinced that the end times were upon us. Okay. Because of this is horrible integration. Okay? The end times were upon us because of social chaos. That's the way they saw the world. So things are really bad. It was interesting what they decided were bad. Okay? So that must mean it's about time for Jesus to come. Well, this. Realize eschatology says Jesus is already here, okay? That the life, death, and resurrection was the fulfillment of all of that prophetic imagery, okay? And that God is here, Jesus is here right now. And that we are indeed co-workers with Christ to try and bring about the fullness of the kingdom right here, right now. Now that really, I realize, and this is one of the critiques of it, it really really sort of plays very well with sort of a progressive worldview or a liberal worldview, however you want to look at it. But it's all about us working as hard as we can, trying to do as much as we can for the poor and the displaced, the marginalized, 
all those folks. Well, gosh, yeah, that's exactly right. Okay, so 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 name it and claim it. Uh, that's who we are as a denomination. We are people who care deeply about all of those areas, and we're people that care deeply about God's creation. It's sort of part of the, the, the Episcopal DNA. So I would say never be ashamed of it. But what our friends with sort of other, other denominations or other leanings need to understand is it's not something that's just sort of out of the blue. It is a legitimate expression of our faith. You can justify pretty much every action around environmental care biblically without any doubt. You can go back to God's original intent for humanity and say it starts right there. And that every example of climate issues in Holy Scripture is an example of a broken relationship with God and a great example of a broken relationship with God is how we treat what God has made, plain and simple. If I don't care about ocean levels rising, I better care about my neighbor who's going to be flooded out as a result of it. If I'm concerned about things like, I don't know, immigration, I need to realize that a lot of that is driven by climate change that requires people to come to a different place in order to make a living, in order to be able to, uh, to raise their children in safety. Now, I need to care about that because my faith says in Matthew 25, I was a stranger and you what? They welcomed me, okay? All of the things that we're concerned about with regard to our creation are really things that we're compelled to care about them because of our faith. And the fact is, this idea, and this is a, a beautiful quote that I'm not sure that you can actually see the author of it. This is actually by Verna Dozier. Verna Dozier, who was an African-American uh, Episcopal theologian, a layperson who lived and taught in Washington, D.C. She died a few years ago. She was a member of St. Mark's on the Hill. He wrote some good Verna Dozier stories, talked to Paul Abernathy, who's the priest in charge of Church of the Epiphany Lawrence. Uh, he was the rector at St. Mark's for very, very many years, and she was a member of his congregation. She was an extraordinary biblical teacher and writer, um, and she would sit in his congregation and frown at him when he was preaching, okay? Or smile at him when he was preaching. But this is what she says. The dream of God is that all creation will live together in peace and harmony and fulfillment, all parts of creation. And the dream of God is the good creation that God created. What the refrain says, and God saw that it was good, be restored. Okay, last, last idea for you. We, as followers of Christ, as Episcopalians, believe in redemption and restoration. Redemption and restoration. It's not just you and I that can be redeemed. We're called to make the effort to redeem what we've broken. We can redeem relationships with one another. 
we also need to be redeeming the relationship that we have with what God has made. Now I went past a question over here. Yes, sir. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because it's the kingdom here and now is always an ongoing task. Okay. Um, and so the idea of we'll live together, that's, that's our work. Okay. It's aspirational. Exactly right. A good way to put it. Um, the kingdom. The, the kingdom is very real. The kingdom is both here and now and not yet. What is it that, that it says in Holy Scripture? The kingdom of God has come near. We reach for it, but it exceeds our grasp, okay? It truly does, but we're still to strive for it because if we don't, as Episcopalians, we're not living into our baptismal covenant. And if we don't, as just plain followers of Christ of any stretch, any denomination, I would say that we are falling short of Christ's call to us. Yeah, yeah. I'm, yeah, um, of course, the Gospel of Thomas uh, is non-canonical, all right, uh, and probably actually uh, a third or even early fourth century um, uh, text. Um, and so, uh, and so, I would look at it more as um, as commentary. Okay, um, our Jewish brothers and sisters have midrash. Okay those extraordinary accompanying texts that allow them to interpret Scripture like a commentary. Um, I would say you could take a lot of the non-canonical uh, materials of the early first few centuries of the church and think of them almost as midrash. In other words, it's a way to comment on what they're seeing being lived out in the early church and in the early writings. So, yeah, it... It does not devalue them as uh, as commentary, but it doesn't quite elevate them to the level of, of Holy Scripture. Um, I uh, I would recommend lots of different things to be a part of this conversation. Okay, I actually have a a, a pretty good reading list that I probably should should send out to people. I'll give I'll get it to uh, to Catherine to include. Because this is just a, a tiny little portion. This is just a, a way to begin the conversation in your own parish around climate change by referencing Holy Scripture and theology. It, it dovetails without any problem. Thank you. Yes, ma'am.
Lord God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be upon you and remain with you 